Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. There are some days that are more special than others, and this is a special day for me, and I think for many of, um, many of us here in Middle Tennessee, because we have known and loved this fellow for a long time. From time to time, we have guest speakers here. Most of the time, it's when I'm away, and I was supposed to be in Israel this week, but something happened. It's in all the papers, and our prayers go out daily and every night for the innocents that are caught in the war, and, and they always will. Uh, we, we are people called to love. But we've had people who have just been amazing, and I would name them all, but the latest was uh, Dr. Rick Hunter, who did such a great job. In fact, it was the most viewed video of last month. So I expect any time now, people to run through the streets yelling, Patrick has saved his thousands, but Rick Hunter has saved his tens of thousands. <laughs> And, and that would be all right with me. But another person we could say the same about who I needed someone years ago that had people skills that I, I don't have, that had energy and a skill set to work with men that I'd never been trained to do. And God delivered to us Dean Barham, and it was a blessing, an absolute blessing. And we have... Um, We've loved him ever since. And so finally we got him to come. And he thought he could be here without me. But I'm just going to sit back there and then soak it up. Dean, would you come on up? Let me say a prayer over you. And I'll move some stuff out of your way as you get situated. All right? Come on in. Welcome home. Thank you, brother. Father in heaven, bless my brother. Fill him with your spirit. Let his words be the words you feed him in the moment. May our ears be open to hear your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Love you. Well, thank you all. Get my Bible here. What an absolute honor to be with all of you here and literally around the world. Um, I am so blessed. Thank you so much, Patrick. I, I, uh, I said this to him individually, but I want to say it to all of you. There are few people in my life that have blessed me more uh, than Patrick Mead. Uh, he called me to, to minister and serve with him and for him um, at a time that was a pivotal moment in my life. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if it weren't for him and his blessing in my life. And I thank you for this church. Again, here and around the world, I love the global impact uh, of our Safe Harbor Church. Uh, I think about the kinds of people that either can't gather in a church or can't have an experience of community in their place. You make community happen uh, here and around the world. It's a blessing. Before we dive into our text, would you please pray with me? Father God, I want to pray as the psalmist did so many years ago in Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're exploring to get today uh, the story of Abraham, who is the father of faith, as we call him. 
It made me think about my own experience of that role in my life as a father. Uh, I suspect all of you that are parents understand this all too well. Uh, Being a parent is a humbling task. I was thinking about this a year ago. I was riding a mountain bike with my son, Luke. He's our youngest. He's in high school, and he is a member of the local mountain biking race team. So if you can imagine this, I'm going up the hill with him. He, he's the kind of guy that races for fun in Texas on trails. In addition to that, just a few months ago, yes, this summer in Texas, for fun, he decided to go on a, I think it was a 66 or 68-mile bike ride uh, on, a, uh, a, on a course called Hotter Than Heck, we'll say, is the name of it, in Texas, in 105-degree heat. So I'm riding a bike with my son, and he's this kind of guy. And there's this one this moment, so it was like an offhand comment that he made as we're riding. He looked over at me, and he said, you know, Dad, you taught me how to ride a bike, and now I'm faster than you. Parenting is a humbling task. We've seen these a lot of, a lot of places and times in our lives. But I, I think about this and I'm thinking, I remember the time when I was learning how to ride a mountain bike, really learning. Like I got a good bike and I was trying to actually learn how to do this and do it pretty well. Um, I was a law student at the University of Virginia at the time and there was a place where I learned a hard lesson. It was called Observatory Hill, literally where the observatory of UVA is. And I was going up there with a gift. I call it a gift. It was my first real mountain bike. I mean, this isn't the 800-pound Huffy that you buy at Walmart. It was the real thing. And I call it a gift, even though I bought it for myself. It was a gift because we'd been married for about a year, and my wife let me buy it. (laughs) That makes it a gift. And so I was going first trail, first bike ride ever on my real nice mountain bike. I didn't get 10 minutes into the ride, and I was... I was riding, and I was looking down, trying to avoid a particular rock on the trail, looking down, and sure enough, the thing I was trying to avoid, I hit square on the front tire, and I flipped over. They call it an endo, when you go end over end on the front of the bike. And there's something I learned the hard way then and ever since. If you've ever taught somebody how to drive a car, it's the same lesson, right? You don't look where you are, you look where you're going. Because if you look where you are, you you can't get a sense of perspective. You'll end up hitting the very thing or going the place you don't want to go. You look where you're going, and you can see out of peripheral vision what you need to see here. But that vision takes you where you need to go. Now, here's the thing. That is a lesson that's not new. God's been trying to teach people on the journeys and the trails of life for a long time that very same lesson. It's all about where you look. Mary Alice said it earlier today. There is so much mess in the world. There's so many distractions and pain and opportunities for fear and uncertainty. It's all about where you look. And I can get distracted by what's right in front of me. And God says, what I want to do for Abraham and for the people of God ever since is to train us where to look as we're going forward on the journey. So as we come into the story, one of the first things I see is that Abraham makes the classic mistake. What do we say all the time for people that are learning to ride a bike or drive a car or, or walk maybe in a treacherous particular place with a, a, a long way down? What do we say? Don't look down. God says, don't look down, Abraham. And that's the problem with Abraham at the beginning of the story. He's looking down at fear and uncertainty that's right in front of the tire, so to speak, of his life. Don't look down. Yeah, here's what's going on in this story. Actually, you see it throughout. 
A key word in this passage, and really, I've learned through the entire Abraham saga, are words of vision and sight. Pay attention to that. Not just here, but really the whole story. I remember one of my seminary professors pointed out, you can unlock much of the story of Abraham if you pay attention to the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Because she learns the lesson that God wants him to get. She says in a pivotal moment in her life, I see the God who sees me. I see the God who sees me. That's what God's trying to get through to Abraham. So pay attention to language of vision and sight throughout the whole story of Abraham. In particular, what you find in this story, and you see it in verse 3, is the first of these. There are five different words or sayings of sight, and four of them the same one. I, I preach out of the NIV most of the time, but I like the ESV on this because the ESV makes a point of translating one word that sometimes is awkward and it doesn't come out in all the tra- translations. It's the word behold. Can you take that in for a moment? Behold. How do you behold something? A good painting, a good work of art, a good piece of... You behold it. You gaze. You look deeply into it. Now, God is going to call him to behold in a moment and something we need to pay attention to. But the first behold in the story comes from Abraham. You see it in verse 3. He says, behold, and he's looking right in front of the tire. Behold, you have given me no children. What is Abraham paying attention to? He's looking at the circumstances of his life and what he sees is fear and uncertainty. God, you told me that I was going to leave a legacy based on my children coming after me. And here, that was 75 when you told me that. And now years have passed since and I have no children. Behold, do you see God? God says, don't look down. Here's the thing, isn't it true that often in our lives, the present circumstances in front of us seem to almost mock the promises of God? Have you ever noticed that? The present circumstances of our lives seem to almost mock the promises that God has made. What does God say in the very beginning of the story? He he says, Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. I'm your shield and your very great reward. Doesn't that feel almost mocking when here he is not having the reward that God promised him to have? By the way, it's not the only time in Scripture that you see this happen. I look in Judges chapter 6. You remember the story of Gideon. He is hiding in a cave, threshing the wheat for that time. And he's doing it in the dark, hiding, because the enemies of God, every time the people of God have a harvest, they come and steal it. And do you know what God says? Do you feel, picture his present circumstance, what's right in front of his tire, so to speak, and what does he hear God say? The Lord shows up and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now let's just picture that for a moment. Does that almost seem mocking to his circumstances? Here is the mighty warrior hiding in a cave, threshing his wheat, and the Lord is with you. Doesn't it feel like it's almost mocking the circumstance and the promise? Or think about Mary in Luke chapter 1. An angel shows up and appears to her and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Take that in for a moment. You who are highly favored, did she feel that way? What happens to Mary in the next weeks and years of her life? Here she is running for her life, hiding in Egypt, and having to face most of her life with the shame and the scorn of her neighbors. Greetings, you are highly favored. Have you ever felt that way before, where it seems like the circumstance of your life is almost mocking the promises that God makes in your life? 
Now, here's what I love. In that tension and in that struggle, God never condemns the person who wrestles with that. Isn't that a grace? God never condemns the people who are afraid and the people who ask hard questions. Did you know God is not afraid of your fear? And God isn't troubled by your questions. Now, he is going to invite you to look a different direction than staring at them. But he's not afraid of your fear. In fact, isn't it interesting that God says some of the most extraordinary things in the face of our fear? In fact, isn't it true that throughout the Bible, God loves showing up in staggering circumstances and saying the words, do not be afraid. Mark chapter 5, a man named Jairus' daughter is dying. She eventually actually dies in the midst of the journey with Jesus. And you know what Jesus had the audacity to say as his daughter is dying? Do not be afraid. Just believe. Just trust. Just look a different direction than what you see right in front of you. And he has the audacity to go to those who are grieving her death and says, she's not dead, she's just asleep. Jesus says the most astounding things in the most extraordinary moments. And he says, don't be afraid. Uh, or I think about uh, situations in John chapter 6. We know the story well. We just took communion. It's coming off of the experience of the feeding of the 5,000. But what happens in John chapter 6 right before that? Jesus walks on water. And I know we've heard that story so often that we're kind of tame to it. But can you imagine being on a raging sea and a man walks on top of the water? What does Jesus say to these hardened fishermen who are terrified? Do not be afraid. Jesus says those words, or God says those words in the most extraordinary circumstance. Or what about Resurrection Sunday itself? When people come up to an empty tomb, a dead man is alive, and supernatural beings are glowing there. And what do they say? Do not be afraid. Now, nobody is condemned for their fear, but they're invited to hear the voice of God. Don't look down in those moments. Don't just get caught up with the fear that's right in front of your face. Or what about questions? God's not afraid of the questions we ask. What did Abraham ask here in verse 2? He said, what will you give me? By the way, it's kind of an audacious question to ask, isn't it? What will you give me? God gave him a lot already. He gave him a tremendous amount of financial blessing. If you read the story right before this, he gave him a military power and victory and defeat. But here's a man struggling. Why? Because he doesn't have a legacy. And God promised him a legacy. You're going to have a child, and it's not just going to be about that child. That child is going to bless the universe. And he says, what will you give me? And God doesn't fight him on that, and he doesn't condemn him for asking a hard question. In fact, the rest of the story, God will go out of his way to answer the question. Isn't it beautiful to worship a God who says, I don't want you to look down, but I'm not going to condemn you for the moments where you struggle. You can bring that struggle to me. When I think about this part of the story, I'm... I'm reminded of our, our international student minister, the church where I serve in Texas. Her name is Tamara. I want you to picture this. She's from Ukraine. Can you imagine the fears and the questions that she deals with on a daily basis? One of the stories that, that just staggers me, <clears throat> she has a video of her mother and her younger brother getting on the train in Kiev as the war was starting, and things are blowing up. They're literally going out as refugees on the train. And on the video, you can see in the back the place they were sitting 20 minutes before blowing up. Do you think tomorrow has a few questions for God? 
Do you think she has some fears that she struggles with as many of her family are still there? And God says, don't look down. In fact, one of the things that is amazing, did, did you hear what I said tomorrow, is our international student minister. And I watched her at a fellowship dinner just a couple of months ago, standing in a circle with a couple from Iraq and a brand new couple who had been in town for just a week. Guess where they were from? Russia. And I hear her struggling and wrestling and praying and hearing the voice of God and speaking the voice of God. And God is not afraid of her fears and God is not bothered by her questions. He's inviting her not to look down. What does the story invite us to do in those times when we face the uncertainty and chaos of life? God says what we all knew from riding our bikes, but it has a little twist to it. He says, don't look down, look up. Look up. And here's the thing. Uh, The twist is when we're riding our bikes or driving our car, we're, we're looking up to where we're going. But God says, that's not what I want you to do. I want you to look where I'm going. Because God has the vision and God has the promise. God says, I want you not to look down at your fears and uncertainties. I want you to look up to the promise of God and to the God who makes promises. Isn't that powerful? In fact, what you find in the rest of this story are a few more beholds. And these are the beholds we're invited to move from here to here. This is what he says in verse 4. The first one, behold, the word of the Lord came. It opens with a fresh word of God. But this is interesting. God isn't just talking here. Compare verse 4 to verse 1. What it says in verse 1 is, The word of the Lord came to Abram, listen to this, in a vision. Sometimes God says, All I want to do is get the gaze of your heart going in a different direction. If your heart's gaze changes, it changes everything. Behold, the word of the Lord In a vision. He wants him to capture a different picture of the God who always keeps his promises. And he reminds him in that vision, I promised I'm going to change the world through your bloodline. Do you believe, God says, that I will actually change the whole world through the people of God? Do you believe that? Then the second look or vision language comes in verse 5. Isn't this so kind of the Lord to help us in these moments when we're stumbling and tripping and flying over whatever it is we're moving in in life? What does he say in verse 5? Look up to the sky. God says, I want to give you a visual. I want you to picture my vision, not just your vision, where I'm going. He said, when you're looking over the tire of your life, you can't even see one child. What did God say? Look at the stars. And if you see that, can you count them? I don't think you can, but that's what I'm envisioning, God says. The one who has no children at all will be the father of countless numbers of people around the world. Isn't that powerful? God says, I want you to look that way, that direction. Look at the God who can do impossible things. Have you ever thought about that? God's vision is astronomically larger than anything that we can ever see. And did you know, it's not just in this story with Abraham, but it's true again and again and again in Scripture. Do you know what God always wants to try to get the people of God to do? To start imagining a world that doesn't exist yet. Have you ever thought about that? That's what faith is all about. Can you imagine a world, not the one that you see right in front of the tire or the windshield, Can you imagine a world that only exists in the vision of God? Now, here's what's different about that. This isn't just a dream. This isn't a fairy tale. If it exists in the mind of God, it exists. Because he will make it happen. 
God says, Abram, I want you to see. Look it up. Look up in the stars. Imagine something, a world you cannot yet see or know. I want to challenge you. You watch for it because this is the way God speaks. Can you imagine something that's a staggering promise of God that he wants to invite you to be a part of? It may be bigger, bigger than you ever imagined, and don't give up on it. It's reminding of this not too long ago. One of I've got so many blessings of, of being married to this incredible woman uh, that has been my wife for over 30 years now. But one of the things I treasure so much is that right when we got married, all of a sudden I had a man in my life that I could call dad again. My father died when I was 10 years old. <clears throat> and I just miss as a boy being able to say, hey, dad, <laughs> and to talk about it. And since the day we were married, I've got, a, I've got a new father in my life. He's still alive. And I call him dad, and I get to interact with him, and I look up to him. And he's been on a journey in his life. You know, he never had the opportunity growing up to grow up in a setting like this. His children are sitting here or around the world on the couch, invited to start knowing the story of God. He didn't start that way. And so he's been on a journey for a while. And I love him dearly, and he sought God, and he's a good man. But you know, he called us a few weeks ago. One of the most powerful conversations I've ever heard on a telephone because he called us to tell us that he was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 77 years old. I tell this story for a couple of reasons. One, can you believe in a world that doesn't exist right now? He's a good man. But Melly wanted him to know and to be assured of his walk with Jesus. And so over the course of her life, she sent him books and she's prayed with him and she's talked with him and prayed for him and all of that. Can you see a world that doesn't exist yet? Here's the other thing. Patrick and all of you that serve and are serving around the world, do you know one of the most significant impacts on his life for Jesus? It's a man who's now just recently gone on to glory. His name's Charles Stanley. And who would have thought when Charles Stanley started his ministry and started doing his ministry, could, could somebody that's worshiping on video, could someone on a screen make an impact on a global way? A major impact. He never met Charles Stanley, but every Sunday morning he'd listen to him, even if he weren't uh, real close to God at that moment, he'd listen to Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley's voice was one of the ways that God brought him to Christ. It's possible to be a global church and to preach on a screen to change lives. Isn't that amazing? God says, don't look down. Look up at the possibilities of what I'm doing. If you can capture my vision and then you trust enough to be a part of that, then God says, I'll change the world to the people. That's what I love. The last part of this text, and it really launches into the, to the rest of it, comes in verse 6. And it's a line that we've heard maybe many times, and you hear it throughout the Bible, really. It says in verse 6 that Abram believed God, and it was credited him as righteousness. I call this living on divine credit. Isn't that great? Isn't it great to have somebody, somebody just hands you a card, and you know that they've got a, a balance a little bit better than yours? God says, I'm going, to live you, I'm going to let you live on my credit here. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as being in the right place. It's not about moral stuff. It's about being a part of the covenant community. God says, you get to be part of the covenant family. In fact, the father of the covenant family. Not based on how good you are, or how good your past is, or how well you performed or not failed in your life. God says, it's based on my performance and not yours. Isn't that powerful? And all you got to do is trust that. That's staggering, isn't it? In fact, the Bible goes 
out of its way to make it clear that Abram doesn't start. He's 75 years old, and he does not start in the right place. Paul says in Romans chapter 4 that he is an example of God. Listen to this language, verse 5. Justifying the ungodly. Tradition tells us that for 75 years, Abram was a pagan. He didn't know this God. And God calls him in the middle of the nowhere to literally go God knows where. (laughs) And he does it. And it's not his performance or his wisdom or his holiness the things I love about this church is everybody is welcome here. Patrick, you, you changed my life by saying the words that you say so often. Welcome home. Did you know God said that to a pagan who becomes the father of faith? Welcome home to the covenant family. Based not on his performance or deserve, it is on God's performance and his power. And that's, is that not the deal of the lifetime? <laughs> get to live on divine credit. And God says, here's the thing. Once you belong to this community, God says, I'm going to use that community to change the world. So here's the challenge. Do you believe that enough to do what Abram did? Was he perfect? No. Did he make mistakes? Yes. But he believed it enough to move in accordance with it. He trusted enough to move. One of the things that happens throughout the Abraham story. Everywhere he goes, he calls on the name of the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord. calls on the name of the Lord. Sets up an altar. He's moving God's direction. We have heard it before. God cares a whole lot more about your direction than he does about your perfection. Isn't that great? And he goes out of his way to say, God, God says, this is on me and not on you. And that's how the end of the story comes about here. It's kind of funny. If you read it, we didn't read this text, but just kind of read the rest of the story because it's weird. And I love the weird stories of the Bible. It says he took a, a heifer and a goat and a ram and a couple of birds and he cut them in half and he split the pieces and he falls asleep. What's going on here? Well, the ancient covenant ceremonies, they literally cut a deal. They literally cut it. They would cut the sacrifice, put it in half, and this is the important um, detail of the story to recognize. What would happen is both parties to the deal would walk between the pieces of the covenant. Do you get the visual? What they were saying is, if I break this deal, may my life become like these animals. You can cut me before this deal doesn't happen. I'm going to be faithful to it. Does you get the picture? Now, what's different about what happens in this story? There's, there's another behold. It says, Abram cut the pieces, put them in half, and God let him fall into a deep sleep. And it said, behold, a blazing fire pot goes between the pieces. Abram's sleeping. What goes between the pieces? What is the image of a fire at night in the Old Testament? It is the presence of God. What does God say? I don't need you. You just sleep on this one. The covenant promise that I say I'm going to use the people of God to change the world, God says, I'm going to make sure that promise happens. In fact, God says, do you get the imagery? You can cut me before I let this promise fail. Isn't that awesome? God says, you can cut me in half. You can cut down my life. You can kill me before I let this promise fail. Abram, you can sleep on this one because I don't need you for that part of the promise. I'm going to invite you into it. God says, I'll make it happen. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you can belong as a part of the family of God when you're as undeserving as Abram is? And do you believe God will actually use your belonging to make a dent in the universe? Do you believe that? So here's, here's my closing challenge. I invite you to have the faith of Abraham to say, I'm going to actually see, go read Hebrews 11, same same idea. 
actually see a world that doesn't yet exist, only in the mind of God. And here's the thing. Can you show up here today as if that world already exists? Watch this. A friend of mine taught me this. We have two different kinds of goals in life. One is an I'll be happy when goal. You get that one? So I have a goal to lose 20 pounds. I'll be happy when that happens, but it's not happening right now. Right? Here's the problem. Those aren't very powerful goals. He said, what if you had an I'll show up as goal? What if there's a vision that's so strong that you say, even though it hasn't happened yet, I'm going to show up today as if it were already true. Do you know that can change your life right now? Let me give you my favorite example of this will be done. Her name is Christina, and she was being coached by a guy that coaches and trains me. And she had a dream. I believe that dream was planted by the very heart of God. It's a simple dream in some ways, although a little bit strange. She said, my dream, she's a leadership coach and consultant. She said, my dream is to coach NASA engineers. She said, I want to coach and train um, kind of leadership and life skills. She doesn't have any of the degrees. She doesn't have any technical degree like that. She does leadership in life. She does people skills. She said, but I want to train NASA engineers and the highest level of technology kind of people. So picture this. What would it look like to have this Abraham-like faith that that was your dream, if God planted that dream in your life? God coaches me, coaches her, and what he, what he said was... I. He sent her a picture of a book cover that he made up. Now listen, he made up. This book does not exist. You get this? And it's her as the author. And the title was, It's Not Rocket Science. How the soft skills of leadership are actually the harder ones. Isn't that a great title? Isn't that great? Like, it's not rocket science. Like, you guys can like, change the world and you can program all sorts of stuff, but you don't know how to deal with people, so I'll do, I'll do that part with you. And he said, now start living like you're writing the book. And she starts researching more. She's, but here's the thing. She starts showing up in conversations as this person. She starts talking to people. She said, well, I'm doing some research for this book that I'm writing. It's not rocket science. She talks about it and gets some info. She sits down next to a guy. Guess what he does? He works for NASA. He's on the Mars project. And they have this conversation. I'm doing this work. and doing this research. Here's my dream or whatever. Guess what she's doing now? She's a leadership coach and consultant for the guy that's getting us to Mars. Now, that's not the best part of the story. Here's the best part of the story. She keeps doing this. She's like, hey, this is working. I'm just going to live into the dream that's not even true yet, kind of, so to speak. If it's the heart of God, I'm going for it. So she goes to this exclusive conference. Can you picture this? Like super exclusive, high-tech, crazy people. And she goes up, and you know when you come to a conference, you've got to get a name badge, right? And so she's really tempted to write, you know, Christina. They say, so what do I put on the badge? She's Christina, and she, she wants to write leadership coach and a consultant, executive consultant. All right, that's all right. I mean, that's what I am too on the side as well. And, but, but she said, that didn't have the punch I wanted. So one of her dreams is that she wants in this world of artificial intelligence, she wants to make sure we don't lose the human factor. Is that kind of important? So are you ready for this? She doesn't even know how to start an institute, but her dream is to start an institute for human and AI partnership. So she said, okay, my name's Christina, and I'm the founder and principal of the Institute for Human and AI Partnership. And that's on her name badge. You ready for this? And then the lady who's checking them in behind the desk says, well, that's amazing. So many people are talking about that. We need to have that conversation. She said, did you know one of our speakers dropped out? Would you lead a session for us on the conversation between human and AI partnership? She said, yes, I will. (laughs) Guess what the highest attended session in the whole conference was? And guess what she is right now? She's the founder 
the Institute for Human AI Partnership, and she's coaching NASA engineers and the highest level tech people. Why? Because she showed up in a world that didn't exist yet, only in the mind of God. And if God can do that in the business world with one person, what can the Lord do with a church that has a global reach around this world with a few people that are willing to say, I don't have the background, I don't have the power, but I see it in your vision, so I'm going to trust in the promise of God and the God who makes and keeps promises. Father God, that is our prayer as we gather here and around the world to trust in you. Father, we admit, I'll just speak for me, I so often look at the pain and the uncertainty and the fear and the craziness that is right in front of my face. And I am so grateful that you don't condemn that look, but you gently invite us to look up to you, to gaze at you, to behold the God of the promise. And Father, I pray that you empower us to live into your vision for our lives and for the church of Jesus Christ around the world. Father, we will give you all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise for the extraordinary work that you will do. But we want to be your servants doing that. In the glorious name of Jesus, we pray.